0: We bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across that gaping political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, where President Trump just paid us a visit. Hey, remember, if you value what we do, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website or better yet, make a monthly pledge or whatever amount works for you. Thanks also to the local businesses who help sponsor this program, including Gateway Market and Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway will also offer you catering and floral services. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures great and small for over 30 years. Our cat loves her and I believe our chickens love her as well. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by just giving Dr. Holding a call at 515-232-8766. So we are relieved. Well, personally, I'm relieved that Donald Trump came here and had his little rally without too many incidences. And I'm relieved that we're getting some rain here in the heartland. This is good. I wish more people would get more rain in places where it's needed, which is about, what, half the country? Anyway, here's our lineup for today. We're going to talk about uh, a a campaign against toilet paper. Yep. We'll also be talking about uh, living near wildfire when wildfire is on steroids. We'll be discussing a student initiative in Indiana confronting legislators about the climate crisis. And we'll also discuss the challenge of defining what exactly is a farm. But first of all, I want to kick this conversation off with a climate update. And, you know, there's always more than you can cover in 10 minutes. But, hey, we're going to talk about a couple things here. First of all, the um, latest on the carbon dioxide pipelines. This is affecting a huge uh, area of the north central part of the U.S., in Iowa alone, there are two pipelines proposed. They would probably be over 1,000 miles in length. That's huge. And uh, we've been attending some of the Summit Carbon Solutions uh, public hearings. I, I, w- I was really close to calling them dog and pony shows. and Okay, I'm going to call them dog and pony shows. And the, uh, the company reps, I mean, very slick. <laughs> you know, when you ask them to promise, whether that we want them to promise that the CO2 their pumping to North Dakota will not be used for extracting more oil. They refuse to make that promise. They've gotten a little more slick in how they deliver their pro climate message, but they haven't changed the reference in their promotional video that says that the carbon will be left in the ground for, quote, millions of years. And I'm just wondering if that's not the height of corporate arrogance to suggest that you know anything about what will happen in a million years. I mean, even 100 years. How do you know? <laughs> Come on. Okay. So, you know, they, they basically won't make promises on stuff that they know they're probably, they probably got another plan on. We're finding out, now, I, at first I wondered whether Iowa farmers would be excited about this because it is, after all, uh, pumping CO2 from ethanol plants. And with 53% of Iowa's corn crop going to ethanol, this could be seen as a way to encourage further ethanol or for further corn production. But, you know, I, I've been surprised and pleased that it seems like a lot of farmers are coming out against this, a lot. Um, you know, there's so many angles angles to talk about here. One one thing I want to mention is this. Um, you know, Summit has been very clear about, uh, the, the officials have been very clear about saying, we're not connected to the Dakota Access Pipeline. We know very little about that. Well, you know what? I discovered on the Iowa Utilities Board website, they're using the same attorney that the Dakota Access Pipeline used. They've got the same attorney. And when I called them out at that on that at a recent meeting, they looked a little flustered and surprised that somebody would have the audacity to question the, the veracity of what they were saying. And uh, you know, I, I just think the more they talk, the more questionable the information is. And again, anytime they're caught in a lie, they're going to rephrase it. They're going to rephrase it so that they come out looking like they are feeding you the straight scoop. You know, I, I really think at this point, I mean, and you know, the other angle is, of course, is eminent domain. And there's, um, there's so much to say about that. I mean, there were so many landowners on the, on the Dakota Access Pipeline route that felt compelled to sign because of the threat of eminent domain. There are many that did end up going to eminent domain and they were not treated well. Um, either by the company or by the, uh, the, uh, the official commission that was established to settle the amount they would get in compensation. There's, there's lots of questions about how this is going to work out in this case. Uh, my, in my ideal world, the utilities board says, hey, let's return to the historic application of eminent domain and let it be used for a public purpose only, which means that carbon Uh, Summit Carbon Solutions would not be able to use eminent domain because this is clearly a private initiative. Anyway, we'll see. I I think the bottom line right now is what needs to happen. I really hope that a lot of my farmer and landowner friends who are listening to this program will say, yes, it's time for us to put together a coalition. You know, there were two farmer and landowner based coalitions that fought the Dakota Access Pipeline. There was a separate coalition that was entirely made of environmental and social justice groups. It's the landowner and farmer-based coalition that is really going to make a difference on this. Because those folks, through no fault of their own, are in the crosshairs. They're in the front line. They're the ones being targeted. Their property is what's at stake. I mean, we're all going to be affected by this. But it's the folks whose property is being threatened that, again, I'm sorry you have to deal with this. But you've got to deal with this. Step forward. Put together some kind of a coalition that includes landowners across the state who are affected by both of these pipelines. The other one is called the Navigator. It hasn't come forward with details yet. I presume it's waiting to see how this one advances, but it's happening. There's no doubt that they're planning on doing it. The stronger the coalition, the sooner the better. (laughs) That's all I can say about that. So I'm moving on a little bit to the the legislation that's coming before Congress, the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill, and again, I don't like all the climate stuff that's in there, so-called climate stuff, because part of what's in there is money for these CO2 pipelines. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there relevant to climate that doesn't make any sense, that in fact is going in the wrong direction. That said, there is there are things in there that make sense, that should be supported. We'll talk about that some other time. Today, I want to talk about this. Greenwashing. Again, sure, Carbon Summit Solutions and other pro-CO2 pipeline companies are greenwashing as well. They're trying to make this out to be some kind of great climate uh, action initiative. And you know, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Disney, those companies have all come forward and said, we're going to be fighting climate change. We're going to be getting to net zero by 2040. We're going to be reducing, like micro- Microsoft has said, it's going to be carbon negative in 10 years. Disney says it'll switch to 100% renewable energy within 10 years. And so, okay, they're making these great statements, but how do you know it's greenwashing? Well, at the same time they're making those statements, these corporations are backing the corporate lobbyists that are working against the infrastructure bill. And again, as I've said, I'm not for all the climate, so-called climate stuff in the infrastructure bill. Some of it's good. Some of it's desperately needed. And, uh, you know, The Guardian calls that bill, quote, one of the last major legislative efforts that will help decide whether parts of the world plunge into a new, barely livable, climactic state. You know, and and you can argue as to whether that's accurate or hyperbole. I fear it might be accurate. I'd rather not take any chances. I'd rather see us move forward to genuinely, uh, you know, reducing as rapidly as possible our reliance on fossil fuels some of this stuff doesn't make sense. Of course, still, if you've got these big companies that have made this claim to being concerned about climate change, lobbying against it, well, that's not a good sign. (laughs) That's not a good sign at all. Hey, real quick, um, before we run out of time here, the uh, California oil spill. It's one of the largest oil spills in California history, over 126,000 gallons, and it has made a horrifying mess of some of the you know, most uh, frequented beaches in the L.A. area has killed, uh, we're not even sure how much wildlife, a heck of a lot of wildlife. And um, crews this past weekend have apparently uh, worked to try to bring the spill under control before it gets into these protected wetlands nearby. These things always make more news when they happen in big, near or in big urban centers. Uh, except that except they happen in areas where poor people live, then, then they kind of get thrown off, off the news cycle. But yeah, this is Huntington Beach, uh, Orange County. This is uh, where pretty rich people live. So yeah, it suddenly brings climate change home, doesn't it? Now, we didn't hear as much about the oil spills that occurred in the Gulf of Mexico last month after Hurricane Ida hit. Well, of course, that's because there's a lot of poor people down there, right? And they're expendable, right? Well, they certainly seem to be expendable in the news cycle you know um, and i was shocked i had to do, do a little digging according to noaa that's the national oceanic and atmospheric administration there were a total of 55 reported oil spills in the gulf of mexico attributable to hurricane ida again i you know i'm not it's not clear how much oil was was released in each of those spills but 55 55 separate reports of oil spills you know caused The irony, of course, is that it's our impact on the environment through our consumption of fossil fuels that's causing fires on, you know, fires on steroids, hurricanes on steroids. And what happens when these hurricanes hit? Well, they cause more oil spills. So I, I wish that would get more attention. I'm glad the California oil spill is getting attention. We're going to be talking later in this program about the California wildfires with a man who lives, well, darn close to the front line of that. Well, yeah, um, I mean, is it isn't anywhere on the front line anymore? I'm mean, here in Iowa in the heartland. We had really bad air quality for a few days because of the fires out west. Anyway. Um, There's also good news. We're back in a minute with some good news as we talk with Len Montgomery of Environment Environment America. She used to be with Environment Iowa about a campaign targeting toilet paper. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community.
1: You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum again. Ed Fallon with you here. Remember, if you like what you hear on this program, you won't hear it on the corporate owned stations. And you know it's important to support the alternative to the right wing shock jocks. You can do that by donating or by becoming a monthly sponsor. Check out the website fallonforum.com. Thanks also to our local business partners, including Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's architecture by synthesis. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. I would like to welcome to the program the uh, Director of Environment America's Public Lands Campaigns, uh, Len Montgomery. Hello, Len. How are you?
2: I'm good. How are you, Ed?
0: Good. Now, if I understand this correctly, you're involved with a campaign against toilet paper. Uh, Len, how could you?
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but uh, it does sound pretty funny.
0: Yeah, okay, so... So yeah, tell tell us what, I mean, I know that um, this is a serious campaign, and here I am having a little bit of levity with it, but toilet paper. Uh, most people don't know where it comes from.
2: Exactly. So let me first tell you a little bit about the boreal forest, which is in Canada, and why we should care. Okay. So the boreal forest covers most of the north of Canada. It's uh, 1.2 billion acres of woodland. It's wow. the largest... Um, the boreal is the largest intact forest ecosystem left on the planet. It's home to uh, incredible bio- biodiversity, um, and it serves as the breeding ground for migratory birds. Up mm. to three billion birds okay. uh, annually migrate, um, and you may see some of them in uh, in your backyard in Iowa this this winter. But the problems here is that this beautiful space is being aggressively logged and much of the wood pulp is being used for tissue products um including american toilet paper
0: okay and uh, what what kind what type of trees are we talking about mostly conifers i imagine so
2: the um the the virgin um sorry the <laughs> virgin uh forest in um in the in the boreal or um uh, are being logged, and they're, think um, like turned into, they're turned into, um, you know, all kinds of different things, but the, it's the soft wood pulp um, that is um, turned into, um, into paper.
0: Okay, so, again, pulp is the, 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 the final product that, that they, that they produce after they've taken the trees, cut them up, um, run them through a, you know, machinery that reduces them to this material that can then be made into paper. Yes, exactly. And unfortunately, I mean, that that can be made from, you can pretty much use that from anywhere. You're not going to get extra soft toilet paper because you got it from an arboreal forest, correct?
2: Correct. Well, and we think, you know, the softest toilet paper in the world will not be much comfort if we destroy our environment to get it. It doesn't, paper doesn't have to come from trees. And, you know, I really think that American consumers, if they knew that their toilet paper was coming from this forest, that it provides habitat and also helps us to fight climate change, they might be willing to, you know, compromise a slight degree of softness to right. not destroy the
0: planet. And again, it, they, the, these forests help fight climate change because they sequester a lot of carbon Correct. Exactly. Okay. So, is the problem that uh, I know Procter and Gamble is uh, I think the biggest manufacturer uh, of uh, toilet paper in the U.S. at any rate, and uh, you know they they get wood from a lot of sources, but they're one of their primary sources. I understand correctly is from these boreal forests in Canada. Is there any reason why they couldn't um, find that raw product somewhere where they aren't doing as much damage, or is wood pulp across the board a problem?
3: For
2: paper and for tissue products, I'd say that wood pulp across the board is a problem. So ultimately, there's no reason that we need to make paper from trees.
0: Where where would it come from otherwise?
2: Yeah, there there are a lot of different alternatives. So um, first, which I guess is from trees, but is recycled, is, you know, recycled paper. Um, there are also alternatives such as uh, bamboo. There's um, wheat straw, which is a, a byproduct of uh, of growing wheat, um, and a number of other fibers that are, um, you know, that are actually out there on the market now. And with uh, if big companies like Procter and Gamble invested a little bit more in in some of these uh, supply chains, we might see them. You know, more widely available and more mainstream.
0: Okay, and those products—bamboo, for example, wheat straw—those products can be more sustainably raised without um, impacting any any uh, any any you know growth that is instrumental in helping to sequester carbon. I
2: mean, every growing anything or any process is obviously going to have some impact, but the you know, the use of virgin, you know, fibers from virgin trees, which have been growing, sequestering carbon. Uh, you know, I think, as you know, bigger trees, bigger and older trees are storing more carbon. Sure. Logging, um, yeah, logging is much more damaging when it comes to the, the climate impact and the, uh, you know, and the habitat.
0: Right. Yeah. So um how has Parker & Gamble responded to uh, Environment, uh, Environment America's request to cease and desist from using wood pulp from Canadian arboreal forests.
2: Sure. So we've had uh, mixed success um, last year. So just about a year ago, the um, Procter & Gamble an, annual general meeting, there was a uh, shareholder resolution that actually received 67% of the votes cast. Um, asking uh, P&G to report on its efforts to reduce deforestation and forest degradation in the supply chain. So that was a year ago. Since then, Procter & Gamble has agreed to make a few additional commitments on, uh, to ensure compliance with no deforestation practices. But they've declined to remove wood pulp sourced from the intact forests from their supply chain, and instead of actually increase the volume of pulp they wow. purchased from Canada by more than fifteen percent in the last year.
0: So let me ask who, who owns who owns Procter and Gamble? Presumably, some guy named Procter and some guy named Gamble.
2: <laughs> it's um, so the the shareholders. Um, you know, it's a. the the shareholders who will actually be meeting tomorrow, which by the time folks hear this, it'll be um, yesterday, I guess, can, you know, can vote (laughs) to, um, you know, to ask the company to change its practices. Um, Proctor and Gamble were the the founders um, and actually um, some descendants have spoken out against this, um, against the use of intact uh, forests to make toilet paper.
0: Okay, so what's the, uh, beyond the lobbying effort to get Procter & Gamble to shift its practice, what is the, uh, what is your recommendation for the responsible consumer, as they like to call us, what should we do to, if we're concerned about what we're using at the end, uh, you know, the end point of, uh, of our visit to the toilet, What uh, what should we use? Yeah,
2: that's a good question. So, Environment America doesn't endorse a particular brand, but a good resource that I can point you to is the Natural uh, Resource Defense Campaign, or NRDC's annual report, which is called the Issue with Tissue, which (laughs) (laughs) grades tissue companies. Uh, The latest one, which is the Issue with Tissue 3.0, came out in uh, September of this year. So that would be a good place to start. Um, But I would also urge, um, urge consumers to ask you know if you're shopping at a store ask them you know where's your where's your recycled tissue product where are your you know non-wood pulp products um you know the more that we're you know, not just shopping with our dollars but also vocally asking for for what we want the more likely we are to see more of those brands front and center
0: and this may be broader than we want to go with this conversation but isn't the entire toilet experience in america really unsustainable i mean here we are using clean water to um to you know and we follow clean water with the most um you know repulsive uh, body excretions um <laughs> and then we follow we follow that up with uh toilet paper from you know presumably in most cases from sources that are also not sustainable isn't there a better way uh, i mean i experienced a better way on the Great March for Climate Action in 2014, but it's not one that you could recommend to a large group of people. We had eco-commodes. They came with us um, during the day. They stayed with our camp at night. They involved, um, uh, they involved a recyclable product at the end of the day that was compostable and actually darn good for the soil. And they, they, did, involve to- they did involve toilet paper. But they did not involve a blue chemical that was you know, used to uh, contaminate the uh, the final product. Isn't there a better way, the whole big scheme of how we how we perform in the bathroom?
2: <laughs> I mean, I think there's food for thought there, certainly. Um, I would say, given the you know sort of mad rush to stockpile toilet paper that we've seen, once or twice during the the last two years, you know, as a result of the, um, you know, the the quarantines and and other responses to the pandemic. I'm not sure Americans are quite ready to give their toilet paper up yet. And so, (laughs) you know, as a starting point, we ought to make sure that something that literally we use every day, but only for a couple seconds, isn't destroying Trees right. that are, you know, being logged, <laughs> logged from Canada, pulped, and uh, you know, brought down so that we can use them for ten seconds, yeah. and then literally flush the forest.
0: Well, Len, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me,
0: folks. We've been talking with Len Montgomery of Environment America. She's the Public Lands Campaigns Director, and we're talking about the effort to uh, get po- Procter and Gamble to change its its it's approach to uh, sourcing fiber or sourcing rather pulp for, uh, for toilet paper. <laughs> back in a minute, when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking with Norm Sackow. He's a resident of California. He's been living on the edge of the wildfire situation. We'll talk with him about that when we come back on a, after a short break on the Fallon Forum.
2: Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged.
0: Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to happy that we're finally getting rain in the upper midwest where we've had some drought problems not as serious as the drought problems out west remember now if you like what we're doing with this program the alternative to the right-wing shock jocks you can become a monthly supporter or a donor check out the fallon forum website or just contact me at ed at fallonforum.com and of course thanks to the local businesses who sponsor this program and also to our non-profit partners including bold iowa building rural urban coalitions to address climate change and to push back against the misuse of eminent domain to build pipelines. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes, workshops, and farm tours at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, so, yeah, we're getting a little bit of rain here in the Midwest. Uh, We have not had it as rough. We've had drought, but not as rough as out west. And of course, accompanying the drought of the western states is some pretty bad fire. And I'm honored to have on the program today, Norm Sackow. He is a self-described citizen of the world. He lives in Valley Center, California, a short distance north of San Diego, and about eight miles from the Lilac Fire. Norm, welcome to the program.
3: Well, thank you. Wonderful to be there.
0: Yeah, so uh, fire country, what is it like living living where you never know what's going to happen in terms of a wildfire these days?
3: Well, it uh, ramps up your desire to be prepared, and I've gone to two different uh, seminars given by the fire department in Valley Center. Uh, the, the, the takeaway was don't have... Logs right next to the house. Don't have anything that's flammable near the house. Don't have boxes. Don't have trash. Uh, That's what the uh, firemen uh, emphasized was to uh, have a defensive zone. And if you have eucalyptus trees, cut them down. Uh, A year and a half ago, I cut down uh, over 300 eucalyptus trees. They are Incendiary and explosive in a wildfire.
0: Really? I, I, who knew? Wow. Well, I didn't know. <laughs> so um, that's interesting. You, I mean, you have uh, you you can actually make a difference in terms of minimizing your fire risk by removing certain types of trees.
3: Yeah, you don't want to have trees right next to the house, which sure. I had when I moved in in 2016. It was literally adjacent to the house destroying the foundation i i removed that tree then there was a pine tree massive maybe 20 feet away from the house Uh, that was removed as well and then the uh 300 trees eucalyptus trees which are not indigenous to, to this country it's from australia sure and it was yeah major uh major mistake trying to use the uh, eucalyptus trees as railroad ties in the 1800s. Uh-huh.
0: Now with this with this uh, as fast as these fires can build and move, especially if you get a really strong wind, is there is there any level of protection that you can achieve by removing trees or wood around the around your house that is going to protect you with any certainty or is there always always going to be a risk even if you take those steps recommended by the fire department?
3: Well, there's always a risk. You know, there's there's wood that's part of the house, there's posts, there's seven of them, big posts, and the winds are uh, un- indescribably uh, strong during a uh, wildfire. So anything yeah. could happen, you have to be on your toes, that's the reason why I have, I exchanged phone numbers with all my neighbors. Uh, if I'm not home, and uh, they'll call me on the phone, I also have, uh, I'm on alert By the cell phone, by the Valley Center Fire Department, they will call me uh, if there's any type of wildfire, which I have been called before. Hmm. So then I'll rush on. The only problem is there's one road going in and out of Valley Center, and it's too late in each direction. So if somebody stalls or if somebody panics, everything is blocked off. Right. Has that happened? That's not happened, only in my imagination, and hopefully it never will happen.
0: But I, I imagine it has happened in some places.
3: Yeah, I would think so, because people uh, panic. They, uh, they become hysterical, and uh, they get into accidents, and uh, cars stall. Things happen. So, uh, yeah, I would say I would move those cars to the side uh, manually if that happened, and and let the uh, traffic go.
0: Yeah, and pick up the passengers on your way out, maybe. Yeah. So so the um. Yeah, the uh, of course accompanying the fires has been the uh, the drought, and uh, I, I check the drought monitor every every week, the one published by the the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, and it's very comprehensive. It covers the whole country, of course, and breaks out the uh, the U.S. and regions and the West continues to look uh, like a very scary place in terms of water shortage. How is that um, playing into your concerns as well?
3: Well, it makes all the trees much uh, more brittle, you know, drier, and they're tender for a a fire. Uh, It's imperative, in my view, to use rock dust, which they had used in Germany in the Black Forest, and they paid the... Uh, Cub Scouts, whatever they call those Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts in Germany to sprinkle uh, rock dust, very fine rock dust like pumice, like like uh, powder. And the trees remarkably come back to life. And then uh, one of the uh, notes is that mushrooms start to grow. And that always tells you that the uh, terrain is healthy. So, uh, you know, if you have minerals and if you have water, you can have healthy trees.
0: Okay, but you definitely need water. It's not just going to be the uh, dust. Right.
3: And right. so it, my rule is if a tree doesn't make it on its own, it doesn't make it. Right. And so all the trees that are on my property, which I still have quite a few and they're mostly uh, fruit bearing, uh, they grow on their own. I don't even have to water them. Oh, the roots okay. go down deeper, right. and the fruit is sweeter.
0: So one thing we're hearing is that the water situation is getting so serious that, uh, that um, certain practices may not be able to continue in the western states. and California, a particular concern, uh, with so much of the Central Valley committed to agriculture, is there a real risk that uh, agriculture may not be able to continue as we know it in the Central Valley?
3: I'm certain of that. We have to use uh, our water more wisely and uh, animal husbandry uh, takes a great deal more than, uh, than does any type of agriculture. And much of the agriculture is, is uh, grown to feed the animals. So if we concentrate mostly on, uh, on, on vegan lifestyle, rather than eating meat, we have uh, a strong, uh, powerful uh, motivation to uh, change—you uh, know, the the, um, the concept of of these uh, of these droughts. But is—is
0: it isn't, uh, isn't uh, almond production about as water consumptive, even more so in some
3: cases than livestock? That's why I would steer away from uh, almonds, and I oh, would okay. steer away from anything. Asparagus also. Uh, I'd go for the uh, foods, the, the, the um, fruit-bearing trees, the nut-bearing trees that will make it on its own. And if you use rock dust and minimal amount of water, which we do still get, we just had a rainfall, uh, you're going to have trees that are healthy. And they're going to be able to um, help us with the uh, greenhouse gases. They will absorb it. And hmm. the trees are our friends. We could... We could pay people to grow trees, to take care of trees, to tend them, and our planet would be a lot healthier. We'd we'd be much. Um, our, our atmosphere would be cleaner. We what about have this warm blanket, this ozone layer, this uh, th- these greenhouse gases that trap all the uh, heat inside the earth?
0: Now, what about former President Trump's recommendation that the the uh, key to preventing fire in the West is to rake the forests?
3: Are people taking that
0: seriously? Do people take that seriously?
3: I think uh, I think Donald needs uh, a little bit of help.
0: <laughs> so raking the forest is not a proposal that fire departments and residents of your area of California are taking seriously.
3: Yeah, I think um, the, the the mineralization of of the trees. The trees will come back. You can do experiments. You can take. Uh, you can take raised bed gardens and use rock dust on one garden and no rock dust on the other. And the same plants give them the same amount of water and you'll be amazed to see the difference. The the, the tomatoes are more delicious. They're bigger. They're stronger. You don't have insects uh, attacking the leaves. Uh, slight amount. Insects are important. They have a very short lifespan. And when they die, they fertilize the soil, so they play a vital role and hmm. uh, they pollinate the uh, plants. You know, insects are not our, our enemies. Right. They're our friends. Well, when,
0: yeah, it depends on the quantity. <laughs> if, when but when yeah. the trees
3: are That's sick, true. then the insects come. Yeah. When people are sick, then the virus comes. The virus doesn't cause it. The insects don't cause it. It's cause and effect. Yeah. And it takes a little bit of thought to To come to the conclusion that these microorganisms that have been vilified are not the villains; they are our friends. We can't live without them.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, one more quick question, uh, Norm. Some have, and I I've, I've been concerned about this too. That there's going to be a pretty significant migration out of the West as water becomes more scarce and fire becomes more prevalent. Do you see any of that happening? Where your neighbors, people you know, are moving. To areas of the, of the country with greater access to water?
3: Uh, I don't see it in you know amongst my neighbors I have a friend that moved to Reno and uh, from Carlsbad which is about 20 miles from me and uh, I, I do hear about people that are moving uh, but uh, I, I haven't experienced it here in yeah. my proximity.
0: Well I appreciate your report from uh from eight miles away from one of these the major fires. and again fires are still happening. And it's uh, you know according to the uh, news out this week, um, you know more than half of the 20 largest fires in California history burned in just the last four years, and eight of the top 20 fires in Oregon have happened in the last 20 in the last um, four years. Uh, Arizona's had more areas burned in its entire history, and California's August Complex Fire. Consume more than 1 million acres. It became the first ever gigafire in 2020. So Norma, stay safe. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. We've been talking with Norm Sackow, who lives in Valley Center, California, just north of San Diego. When we come back, we're going to be talking with a student, high school student from Indiana, who's been working with uh, a statewide student initiative to confront the climate crisis and to encourage lawmakers to begin to take it seriously. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipscham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with the Here, folks. Hey, thanks again to those in our listening audience who support the program. You know, our team of five dedicated volunteers could not do this without you. If you're not already supporting our mission, please consider a donation on the Fallon Farm website or, better yet, become a monthly sponsor. And thanks to our local business partners as well. Thanks to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. It is my pleasure to welcome to the program Rahul Duray. He's a student at West Lafayette High School, north of Indianapolis. And he's one of the leaders of the Confront the Climate Crisis, which is a statewide effort in Indiana, working with, I mean, among other things, working with state house Republicans on trying to address the climate crisis. Uh, Raul, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so tell us, what is Confront the Climate Crisis?
4: We are a statewide campaign campaign. Um, made up of over 150 students from across the state of Indiana working to pass climate justice legislation in the Indiana State House. We launched in September of 2020, where we um, aim to unite different climate strike groups from across the state, from the north in Lake Gary to Indianapolis to Evansville. And we're trying to uh, unite the environmental movement in Indiana to get to achieve some real change at the state house.
0: Great. Now, like uh, like Iowa, my home state, Indiana is pretty much a red state. Uh, your legislature, I believe, is controlled by Republicans as well. Correct? Right. And have they, they have been? A supermajority. Yeah. Okay. A supermajority. Okay. Uh, have they been receptive to conversation about climate change?
4: Right. So. I am fortunate to have a great state senator represent me. His name is Ron Alting, and he is the longest serving Republican senator in Indiana. Um, We initially met with him back in May of this year to propose um, an idea about climate legislation for Indiana's uh, 2022 legislative session. Senator Alting was uh, totally on board and he has been an amazing partner over the past few months. So I'll certainly say with Senator Alting, um, a Republican, he has been great. Um, that, that's, very, are, that's very
0: encouraging. That's very encouraging.
4: Yeah, definitely. Now, for most Republicans, climate change is an issue that, um, that they're a bit um, not— very encouraged to act on.
0: I'll say. I'm. I'm going to um, get. I'm going to guess that you just. Uh, that was an understatement. <laughs> For what I know of our <laughs> legislative Republicans here in Iowa, they just don't seem at all interested, and it's a shame. Right. And uh, I mean, I think. I think that one. One of the things that we've been able to talk about here is carbon. Carbon sequestration, trying to find ways of keeping it in the soil using using agriculture to improve our efforts to keep carbon out of the atmosphere. Is that part of the conversation in Indiana as well?
4: Definitely, yeah. So there was a bill that was proposed in Indiana's 2021 legislative session um, that was to create a carbon credit market Uh to help farmers um, practice carbon sequestration practices and keep their carbon in the soil. That bill um, had widespread bipartisan support. Unfortunately, it got caught up in um, the horrible political um, scene um, and the bill was changed a ton and it didn't end up getting passed this past legislative session, mm. which is extremely annoying. But that but I'm, I'm really glad that that is part of the bipartisan conversation in our state.
0: Right. And so uh, what, what are some of the details that will be on the table in 2022 that your your representative is uh, is willing to put forward?
4: Right. So Senator Alting will introduce two pieces of climate legislation, a concurrent resolution and a bill. The resolution will be a statement for the Indiana general assembly to acknowledge that climate change is a problem and the bill will create a statewide climate and environmental justice task force. Given the fact that our state hasn't acted on this issue for far too long, we want to take the first step to initiate a deep conversation and a deep process about climate change in Indiana. So that's what we think that first step right. is to first acknowledge that this is a problem and then to create a task force to start a conversation and create a climate action plan for our state.
0: Now, as a former lawmaker in Iowa, I was in the state house for 14 years. The, um, I, I, I agree. Sometimes people will say, okay, you want to do a resolution, do a task force. That's meaningless. But I agree with you. If nothing has been done, mm-hmm. if this is a new concept for lawmakers and other leaders to wrap their minds around, a resolution establishing a task force and a really specific charge is a really good idea. So I, I, I commend you on that. I think that's a very good starting place.
4: Thank you. And another thing I'll mention um, to the point of the task force is climate change is an issue where you can't solve it with one policy, right? It's going to take a lot of policies to mitigate climate change and to adapt to the effects of climate change. So that's why we're seeking a task force to, rec- to create a plan regarding all of the policies that need to be implemented. Right.
0: So who are, who are some of your other political allies in Indiana?
4: Right. Well, we definitely have some great Democrats on our side. Um, I'll, I'll mention um, there's a representative from Indianapolis named Carrie Hamilton. Um, she has been a fearless warrior. She's been so committed. In 2020, she introduced um, a resolution very similar to the one that Senator Alting is going to introduce. Um, I'll also mention um, there, there are um, some other Republicans as well. Um, Senator um, Sue Glick who authored that carbon sequestration uh, bill that I mentioned. Right. Um, she has um, been part of our conversation, and she's given us some great advice. Um, and, and there are others. Um, certainly, um, many legislators, both Democrats and Republicans, um, are willing to talk about this. Um, we're, we're hoping to be able to reach um, more Republicans and be able to lobby more Republicans um, to act on this issue. Um, yeah, it very, mu- it very
0: much should be a bipartisan issue. So that's good that you're, you've got some inroads in, in that direction. Now, I've heard also from uh, from my friends in Indiana. I've heard about the Earth Charter. Uh, mm. Are you are you involved with that at all?
4: Um, I'm connected to Jim and the staff of Earth Charter.
0: Okay. Yeah. And that's mm. that is that issue is that effort working in, in tandem with uh, what your what your group is doing at the State House. Yeah, they
4: definitely are. I'll just mention that Jim, the executive director of Earth Charter, and Shannon, the assistant director, they have been amazing mentors for me. Um, they've guided me throughout this process. They've guided guided my team, and they've been great.
0: I would say this too, again. Another observation as a former lawmaker: sometimes one person can indeed make a difference. I I was a mm-hmm. I, I I think I was in my second or third term at the state house, and a woman approached mm-hmm. me with concern about kids in Des Moines being arrested for skateboarding. And because of her involvement, because of her activism, we were able to get legislation passed that made it possible for cities to build skate parks. And it took Des Moines a long time, but Des Moines finally came around to that and built the biggest skate park in the U.S. that hosted the Olympic trials, in fact. So, you know, one person can make it. That's all because one person came and said, hey, we got a problem here. I think of the, similarly there was a, a problem with um, an effort to close down uh, some veterinary clinics that were doing good work in poor neighborhoods. And um, one guy came and fought against that and uh, got convinced enough of us to go along with him that he made, it, he made it happen. So I think it's really good that you're doing this. And I know you're not just one person. You've got a group, you said 150 youth statewide. That's really good. That's really encouraging. Yeah, thank you so much. So one more, and one, one last question for you, Raul. Um, mm-hmm. President Biden, how is he doing when it comes to climate? I know it's a little beyond your range of activity, but I'm just curious about how you and other students in Indiana are perceiving the president's response to the climate crisis.
4: Mm-hmm. I think his plan that he has been been saying that he's going to act on is, is good. Um, you know, the, um, He said he wants to achieve carbon neutrality um, within um, a a good time frame. Now, I'm worried that um, what he says won't exactly happen. We're seeing in Congress um, basically politics where, um, you know, even Democrats aren't know understanding how much of an emergency this crisis is I'm particularly worried with um, you know the fact that in um, the legislature um, the Build Back Better bill is um, not certain to pass I think that bill is quite important so that's one of the main things I'm worried
0: about Mm, but
4: I think President Biden's intentions and his plan and his goal are
0: great. All right. Well, I just wanted to get your feedback on that. And again, I really encourage you on what you're doing. You're doing great work. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Raul Duray. He's a, a high school student involved with the uh, Confront the Climate Crisis Youth-Led Statewide Effort in Indiana. And he is working hard to encourage uh, Republican lawmakers and all lawmakers in, in Indiana to support legislation that would begin to address the climate crisis. Raul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, At Folks, when we come back from a short break, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be talking about the challenge of defining what exactly is a farm. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community.
1: At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small, cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks for sticking with us today, folks. Uh, Thanks to our local business partners as well, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, welcome back to the program. Again, Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. And with me in the studio, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. We've been talking about this. We figured this is a good time to talk with you about it as well. What is a farm? Kathy, what is a farm and why did why did we get to the point of having this conversation?
1: What is a farm depends on who you ask. Uh, but we're talking about this today because uh, we have grandkids over quite a bit. And yesterday, three-year-old Quincy was here. And all the grandkids like to talk about food, how it's grown. We always show them what's growing on the farm. And so uh, when Quincy was here, the letter of the week was F. (laughs) And one of the sentences we talked about was, We grow food on our farm. And then we talked about different foods. And Quincy responded, We grow eggplant and peppers and tomatoes on our farm. Well, Quincy's farm at his house is four garden beds in the front yard, which is great. Yeah.
0: And so did you correct him? Did you say, no, Quincy, that's not a farm?
1: Of course I did not. I said, <laughs> I said yes, okay. you do. That's a wonderful farm you have, Quincy. Yeah. So it, it, we have talked about it before, Ed, and it got me thinking. Um, we've often talked about the, the USDA definition of a farm. We are an urban farm. and What is that uh, definition? Well, USDA defines a farm as any place... That produced and sold, or normally would have produced and sold, at least one thousand dollar worth of agricultural products during a given year. So we don't sell our produce; we teach people how to grow it. But that's where you know we we definitely grow over a thousand dollars worth of food. We grow half the food we eat on our <laughs> t- roughly ten tenth of an acre. And of, we're area. generous eaters. We're we're really <laughs> yeah. good eaters.
0: So that's one definition. Uh, I I know that. Um, there are, you know, folks who farm large tracts of land, and in an Iowa, that would be 1,000, 2,000 more acres. Uh, you're talking, they, they, they don't, you know, there's, there's a certain bias against small operations. I mean, we, we, we ran into that in a presentation a few years ago where uh, someone with a nonprofit representing agricultural interests referred to what we did as a hobby farm. And uh, that got us a little upset. Well, I I wanted,
1: I I should have thought to ask that person, what are your hobbies? And if he had said golfing, uh, uh, you know, then that would have qualified as a hobby. What we do is not a hobby. It's how we eat. And so uh, that that doesn't sit too well with us. Uh, A lot of people go to a dictionary for the real definition. Okay, of a that's farm. a yeah, yeah. great great
0: question. What does the dictionary say?
1: Well, Miriam Webster says a farm is a tract of land devoted to agricultural purposes, a plot of land devoted to the raising of animals and especially domestic livestock, one of those two. So, of course, that's what we do. We raise both um, uh, crops and livestock here, and uh, the livestock being chickens and bees. And then I thought tract of land. Maybe that's where some people trip us up a little bit. They say, "Oh, you're not big enough to be a farmer. I don't know, a tract of land by definition yeah, what is, is just that? a defined area.
0: A defined area. So yeah. like a square foot.
1: <laughs> it could be anything. <laughs> okay. It could be anything. So so um, So
0: you're so your grandson Quincy is a farmer.
1: He really is. Three
0: beds that's 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 a tract of land.
1: Well, you know, I think we are all uh, Gaining awareness that getting back to a more old school definition of farming is where we need to go to make sure that we have food security in the climate future, and also to um, to just make sure we're treating the earth sustainably and so, making sure we can you
0: know so what do that is what what is the uh, what is the understanding of what constitutes a farm beyond the U.S. What about the rest of the world?
1: Uh, it sounds like the world supposedly according to Wikipedia, has 570 million farms, most of which are small and family-operated. Small is usually defined as between one and nine acres. Mm. We have about a tenth of an acre, and so I think there are We're more... hyper-small. Yeah, there are more than 570 million farms in the world because they wouldn't even include uh, something the size that we do in that figure, I don't
0: believe. Mm. Okay. But so, I mean, around the world, there's a lot of folks who are still... And some of them are living in very desperate and impoverished conditions that are still, you know, basically earning their, their earning their living their way of the their way of surviving mm-hmm. from their land that mm-hmm. they farm.
1: Well, technically, uh, if you think not of farm as a noun, but think of it as a verb, and technically, it's to, an activity that purposely cultivates food from the land or livestock for food. Uh, outside of just letting nature take its course, whatever's growing, and that would be more foraging, hunting, fishing, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But when you actively cultivate it, you are doing the act of farming, which makes you a farmer.
0: So, and again, I don't know if the definitions are adequate, but do we have any way of measuring whether there are there are, there are a declining number of farms in the U.S. Whether farms might be growing? I know for a long time, farms in Iowa. We're getting we're shrinking every year. There was less and less, but I'm thinking with the growth of small farms, uh, farms dedicated to direct marketing, uh, mm-hmm. people doing urban farming, that perhaps the number is growing. Yeah, there know. was
1: a there was a 2019 CNBC story about uh, the the census of agriculture showing de- continued decline in the number of U.S. farms and the amount of land farmed both. However, uh, which, is, which is sad to see, but some of the farms that are currently in production are not technically growing food. They're growing fuel and, well, they're growing, growing food for animals.
0: Well, I mean, a lot of the farms in Iowa are mm-hmm. not growing food. They're growing feed, feed. for animals, mm-hmm. fuel for cars, right. and products that are used in laboratories for various, various uh, ends. I mean, there's so many things that come out of a an ear of corn, including high fructose corn syrup. So, yeah, it's a, farm is a very broad definition beyond food.
1: Well, I wonder if that census of agriculture, the next time they do that that count, if they might start to include, um, maybe micro-farm is a good word. And, mm. um, you know, we think, I guess, subsistence farming is a word that folks are familiar with. Some people think, well, you don't sell your food, so you're not a farm. Well, subsistence farmers are growing food so they can eat. Yeah. And, um it sound, some people use that as kind of a pejorative. Oh, yeah. they're subsistence farmers. Well, I think that's a very noble thing to do, frankly. And
0: some, I think you know, people are kind of surprised at just how much we can grow on a tenth of an acre. It, it involves a lot of um, creativity, it involves complicated formulas for rotation of crops, we, and, yep. and a heck of a lot of compost.
1: It, it does. That's, that's what the chickens are for, and our close proximity to a horse stable. Uh, You know, we grow about uh, 50 different either raised beds or garden spaces. Uh, Our raised beds tend to be about four foot by eight foot, and we fill those with our own homemade compost and then amend them every year. We have at least 40 different kinds of food growing in our spaces. Uh, Many of those have more than three, four varieties for instance, lettuce, how many varieties of lettuce do we grow? Four or five? Uh, six, seven, five or six, yeah. Five or six varieties of lettuce. Yeah. So so the, the, um, the amount of food that we grow and the variety of food that we grow, we're, we're definitely, this isn't a hobby.
0: So if your grandson Quincy comes back and tells us again what he's growing on his farm, what are you going to say to him?
1: I'm going to say, keep it up, Quincy.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, that's, that's a very good job and learning and helping him learn to do even more.
0: Yeah. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm, which, again, is what feeds us, but also provides an opportunity to teach people in the Des Moines area how to turn their yard into dinner. Thanks uh, to today's guests. Thanks also to our production team of Sherry Hardina. Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself. Thanks to our local business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. And remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Sign up for my weekly email on the Fallon Forum website and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks again for tuning in this week, folks, and we'll be back at you next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.